the 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. Three oh seven on the Central Coast. It is Wednesday, December thirteenth, two thousand twenty-three. I'm Dave Congleton, welcoming you to another edition of Tom- Hometown Radio or Tom Home Radio, whatever. We are here all the way till seven o'clock. No matter what you call it, we're live. We're local. That's all that matters. Which means on this broadcast at 4.05, Paula Dooley and Dan Fredman check in to introduce us to the brand new Slow Coast Tasting Passport. Around 4.30, Joe Brittingham gives us the very latest on the economy and what happened with the Fed. Rich in Morro Bay explains why Republican support in Congress for Ukraine is being linked to action on the border. And at 6.05, Michael Aaron Woody dissects the California budget situation. We're now billions of dollars in the red. What do we do, if anything? It is the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. First up, always good to be in conversation with Dr. James Papp, local historian extraordinaire. We remind you he is the author of the brand new book, San Luis Obispo County Architecture, available however you get books. He also has a brand new exhibit up at the History Center. A lot to talk about. Professor, how are you? It's always a pleasure to be here. Nice to see you, sir. Thanks for coming in. Let's start with the exhibition. What's happening at the History Center? Uh, So this is an exhibition that's a bit different from the book, although it um, interacts with the book. It's an exhibition focusing on architectural photography. The book is a book of architectural photographs, but um, the focus is not on, on the photography, it's on the objects in the photographs. And I just thought it would be interesting to focus on how people interact photographically with buildings. Sometimes they're taking pictures of their friends and family and a building happens to be in the background. Sometimes people are particularly focused on a building and capturing that building, the essence, the aesthetics, uh, recording it uh, technically for some use. Um, And we have had in San Luis Obispo County in 170 years, uh, really famous people have come through to photograph our architecture. And we also have a lot of uh, local photographers who've taken the architecture and a lot of anonymous people. We just don't know who they are anymore. Their their names have become disconnected from their photographs. Hmm. Uh, You can get the book however you get books. Again, it's called uh, San Luis Obispo County Architecture. You have been all over. How does our architecture compare here locally to what you've experienced elsewhere? Oh, our architecture is astounding. Um, It's, and and I can't emphasize that enough because um, the, the wish to preserve buildings is now seen as uh, against progress. Um, 
in in an odd way because if you tear down an old building in which you have already embodied carbon and that you've already paid to build, you have to build an expensive new building. <laughs> Which takes a lot of carbon and is only available to rich people. So, you know, developers don't build buildings for poor people. There's no money in it. Uh, but I think it has something to do with we were kind of at the end of the of, of the world that we're equidistant from L.A. and San Francisco. And we are on the farthest frontier and somehow there was someone in the county who wanted to build every style of available architecture and incredibly sophisticatedly. I mean, not just Hearst Castle, which is probably next to Mount Vernon, the most important um, historic house museum in the country. Um, but, uh, you know, even very simple buildings um, like like Julia Morgan's uh, playhouse <laughs> for the daughters of her cab driver, you know, it, you know, which is this wonderful um, craftsman uh, building. Um, we just have example after example, and and a lot of communities such as Atascadero really uh, define themselves by their architecture. But back up, please. So you compare Hearst Castle to Mount Vernon. Yeah, I think Interesting. Mount, so Mount Vernon, the reason I think of Mount Vernon is it is the first historic house museum. Yeah. Um, it was owned by um, Washington's uh, step descendants and uh, the Custises and, and um, they were running out of money. There's a, a wonderful uh, painting in the de Young Museum in San Francisco of Mount Vernon showing its facade and showing all the columns and one of the columns has been replaced by a a tree trunk because they've, you know, they, they, that's all they had. So they were running out of money and they suggested that it become a historic house museum. And so the Mount Vernon Ladies Association took it over. It was always women who were um, involved in preservation in the early days. And this was right before the Civil War. And obviously things were suspended during the Civil War, but then came roaring back after the Civil War. They restored it and they turned it into a place that you could visit for its association with George Washington. But clearly all so the architecture was remarkable as well. So then what makes Hearst Castle so high on your list? Because it's a castle. Because it is, <laughs> it is such a remarkable combination of one patron's desire and one architect's ability to produce that. It is the classic... Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it the classic. Let me walk that back. I would say it is the... Um, it is it is the finest of California hillside hilltop houses, and that's something that is particularly about our architecture because we had these incredible hills as a result of our seismic landscape, and people in San Francisco started you know slapping uh, houses on the side of them in just extraordinary ways, and Hearst Castle is the apotheosis of that, and Julia Morgan working for 20 years with Hearst on both the buildings and the landscaping. What's the famous one in South Carolina? The Biltmore. Big, the Biltmore. Biltmore, yes. So how, I've not been there. How do we compare to the Biltmore? You know, Biltmore is big. But I don't think it's that interesting. It's okay. it's a big, big house, <laughs> you know, in a Renaissance revival style. Um, the, the interesting story, you know, because it was um, uh, William K. Vanderbilt or George Washington Vanderbilt. I can't remember which Vanderbilt it was uh, who built that. And, you know, he hired... Um, uh, 
trying to remember. Maybe it was Morris Hunt on that. But it was one of the East Coast architects, and he just did sort of the classic thing that was going on at the time. What was so interesting about William Randolph Hearst is that he hired his mother's architect on his mother's deathbed. She was dying of the Spanish flu in 1919, and during that month that she died, whether before she died or just after she died, he visited Julia Morgan, who had um, been his mother's architect both for um, her house in Pleasanton, but also for Asilomar, which is this wonderful YWCA camp, was once a YWCA camp. It's now owned by the state of California. It's on, uh, it's next to Pebble Beach. Um, it's amazing. You can stay there. Uh, don't go on booking.com, call up and ask to stay in a Julia Morgan room, and you will get in one of these really original camp rooms with the original iron bedsteads. Um, so, Hearst realized Julia Morgan's genius, and he initially asked her to build him at San Simeon, at the top of the hill where they had had a camp for years that they had visited, a um, Japo Swisso bungalow is how he described it. A Japo Swisso bungalow. What he meant by that, for anyone who's ever visited Pasadena and gone to the Gamble House by Green and Green, is he meant a um, what was known as a California bungalow or American Craftsman House, um, which had Swiss origins, these big wide gables and deep overhangs, really good for California landscape, lots of inside and, and California weather, inside and outdoor spaces. Uh, but green and green infused that shape, the sort of Swiss chalet shape, with Japanese aesthetics. And um, William Randolph Hearst had a whole pile of books on the topic. And so that's what he wanted her to build, a bungalow. But... Mm. The uh, the California bungalow was going out of fashion in 1919 when he approached her, and they almost immediately decided, no, we have to do historic revival. And they first thought about mission revival, but they said, no, no, that's too plain for what, for what William Randolph Hearst had in mind. So um, just at that time, something had been invented called Spanish colonial revival, and it was invented in San Diego for their Panama Pacific exhibition, uh, which took place at the same time as the one in San Francisco. San Francisco was a big deal city, and of course they were having a World's Fair. San Diego decided to have a, a simultaneous World's Fair. San Diego at the time was the size of San Luis Obispo is now. Hmm. So it was extraordinarily gutsy of them. I was going to use another word, but I'm going to use gutsy. Thank you. Uh, because this is radio. This is a family show. Thank you. To, um, to decide to do that. The architect in charge was um, uh, Irving Gill, a wonderful sort of pre-modernist San Diego architect. But a guy named Carlton Watkins, or sorry, not Carlton um, Watkins, um, a guy named... Oh, unfortunately, it's, a, guy. A, it's a, guy. a name like Carlton Watkins, and yeah. it's interfering with me. We'll get to Carlton Watkins later. Anyway, a guy came in from the East Coast and said, no, you want something more extravagant. Why not base it on all this wonderful sort of Baroque architecture in Mexico City, um, you know, these wonderful churches and haciendas and, and so on in Mexico? And so that's the style they adopted, and that was the style that William Randolph Hearst adopted. All right, we're in conversation with Dr. James Papp, the new book is San Luis Obispo County Architecture. You can get this book however you get books. Also go check out the exhibit on display indefinitely 
at the History Center in right downtown San Luis Obispo. I'm Dave Congleton. This is Hometown Radio. Well, tomorrow, uh, Jerry Shea joins us to announce that uh, he and his wife are joining the, the throngs. They're leaving California. They're heading to Oregon. He'll explain why and and when. All that good stuff. Some of the shows we're working on for tomorrow. Uh, we're continuing Dr. James Papp, historian extraordinaire, author of the new book, San Luis Obispo County Architecture, available however you get books, also available for sale at the History Center. You can buy the book when you go down to see the new exhibit. So is that open every day, by the way? Every day but Tuesday. And the Images of America, these series, we had uh, Steve Reebuck on last week. He did one about the history of abalone diving uh, off the coast. Uh, These are heavily influenced by the photographs that you find. Talk about the challenge of finding photographs that go that far back. Well, it's interesting. A part of it is is dating a photograph. Uh, you know, when is it of? Because that's part of what its history is. And um, it's actually a lot easier to do these books than it used to be because a lot of collections like the Library of Congress or the Getty or the Huntington are putting their photographs online in these really huge file sizes. So, um, you know, you can go to the Library of Congress and look at a Dorothea Lange photograph in a file size of about 125 megabytes, Mm. which you could basically put on the side of your house. Um, And that's really nice for someone like me who's trying to, you know, pull things together in a book um, because we used to have to go and visit you know, individual institutions, and then you would have to have them pull out their photographs, and then you would say, how much is it to scan this? And it becomes very problematic. Uh, most of this book and most of the exhibition is from the History Center, but I'm also using photographs from the California State Library, from USC Digital, um, all over the place, uh, anyone who has something interesting. And in fact, one of the things, because I'd like to do Santa Barbara next, I discovered this whole series of colored hand-colored magic lantern slides of Montecito Gardens in the 1920s. <laughs> just absolute gold. Oh. They're sitting at the Library of Congress. So, you know, you just go there and look up Montecito, you know, put Montecito in the search, and these will pop up. So it's a lot of fun to explore on the Internet on your own. Uh, by the way, Craig has determined that George Vanderbilt II commissioned architect Richard Morris Hunt to design Biltmore. Yes. And previously, I was talking about Carlton Watkins, and I said, no, not Carlton Watkins. The person I was thinking of was Carlton Winslow, uh, who was an East Coast architect who came to San Diego and invented, basically, uh, colonial Spanish colonial revival architecture, which then William Randolph Hearst and Julia Morgan used for Hearst Castle. What's really interesting about Carlton Winslow is his son then became an architecture professor at Cal Poly. San Luis Obispo. Hmm. And around 1970, he had his students go out and interview people and do drawings of local architecture in the county. And that is a gold mine of records. And some of you will have seen that by um, it's under Carlton Winslow's names, but it's basically his his students went out and collected. I, I don't think of her in terms of architecture, but I do in terms of photography. 
And that would be Dorothea Lang. Yeah. Um, so she's one of the, the famous people who sweeps through the county for one reason or another. And she took, um, so Dorothea Lang was rehired by an agency which had a bunch of different names as, as uh, they went through the Depression. But, but one of the names was the Resettlement Administration. And her job was to um, go out and photograph the conditions of the Depression and of the people in the Depression. And her very, very famous photograph, probably the most famous 20th century American photograph, Migrant Mother, was taken at Napomo, in a camp at Napomo. So it's extraordinary that we have uh, one, perhaps the most famous American photograph of the 20th century taken in our neck of the woods. (laughs) What's equally extraordinary, the same year she took that, uh, probably a few months later, because she she was driving through the county and she just sort of on a whim decided to stop at, at a migrant workers camp. It was raining. The um, pea harvest had been rained out. This was why the migrant workers came in late winter and early spring uh, to pick the pea harvest. And so all of these families were were here starving. They had, they couldn't make any money. They didn't have the money to go on everywhere, anywhere else. So she rushed those photographs to San Francisco, to the Resettlement Administration office, but also published them in a San Francisco newspaper up there. And the immediate effect of it was that food was rushed to the um, stranded migrant workers in, in the Nipomo camps. So she very much had an agenda in mind, as did her employers. The interesting thing is she also took photographs. She was hired to take photographs of the Japanese American concentration camps, what I will call concentration camps, because that's what they called them then, um, after 1942. And the federal government also hired to, her to, to take those photographs, but suppressed them, refused to let them be published. Mm. Uh, so. It's interesting. You can go online and you can see a panel of photographs that ends up with migrant mother, but shows the photos right before. Yeah. She the took classic a, one. She took a series of seven before she managed to get... And you can see all seven. Yeah, you or can see eight all seven. Or whatever it is. Before she managed to get the right one. And the one she took is, is not really an architectural photograph. It's very close up. The one I used in my book was pulled farther back. And you could see that they're basically in a... It scarcely qualifies as a tent. Did she know what she had when she took that photo? Did she recognize it right away? No, because that that actually wasn't the first one that was published. It wasn't really recognized, I would say, until the 1940s. And by the 40s, it became iconic of the Depression. Um, and so people needed a little bit of distance. And so by the 1940s, it's showing up in exhibitions and museums are starting to buy prints of it and so on. And so really by the 1950s, that's when it is established in books of photography, books of history of photography as this classic American photo. We're in conversation with Dr. James Papp, inviting you to the History Center to see his new exhibit and to pick up a copy of his new book, San Luis Obispo County Architecture. Available however you find books. The perfect holiday gift. Stick around. Here's the news. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear And the way 
John Lindsay's going to join us on Friday to warn us we've got big storms coming. I think John said uh, starting Sunday afternoon. We'll give you the details. Also, uh, Stu Jenkins will be with us. We're with you weekday afternoons from 3.05 to 7 o'clock right here on KVEC. Dr. James Papp, historian extraordinaire, is with us. The brand new book is called San Luis Obispo County Architecture, out and about wherever you get books. I stress that this is the perfect holiday gift. And you can also go by the History Center and see the new exhibit featuring a lot of the photographs that James talking about. Anything else we should mention about Dorothea Lange? I think one of the things, there are a couple of things that are important about Dorothea Lange from the perspective of photography. One, she's very mobile. There's, um, I have a photo in the exhibition of her. We don't know exactly where it was taken, but she's sitting on the top of her woody, which is how she's getting her, you know, photography studio around. But her equipment is minimal compared to in the old days of the Old West. You see someone like Carlton Watkins, and he has a, a horse and um, wagon that is, you know, which is his studio. And there were incredibly complicated ways of developing in those days. So as, as photography becomes more mobile, you can do more things with it. And one of the things she tried to do by taking photographs of the camps, of the migrant camps, was to show the awful conditions that they were living in. So my, my exhibition is a whole lot of photographs that I hope will interest people with a lot of information about them. There's no overarching grandiose theme, but there are sort of mini themes. And one of the mini themes is contrasting the the, the photography of the architecture of the very wealthy with the photography of the architecture of the very poor. And that's mm-hmm. what you get with Dorothea Lange. She is taking people in the most dire circumstances possible, including, and I showed a picture of this today, Dave, um, someone who had really created a tiny house of their out of their car in the 1930s and was traveling around. He was a pea picker. He was a pea picker. He was a migrant pea picker. And she even interviewed him. So we got a little bit of his philosophy. Um, but he had created this really extraordinary house. And there he is sitting in front of it uh, in his horn room spectacles with his um, fedora, not in very good shape, um, you know, in, enjoying his life as he has focused it to be uh, in, in the circumstances he's in. But, you know, a lot of this is about the federal government trying to provide better housing to these people. And I also have some photographs of the Napomo Mesa Migrant School, uh, which was operated between the 30s and the 50s for the children of these migrants just for about three, four months of the year. And, you and know, what happened to it? Why did it stop in the 50s? Um, the migrants stopped showing up. Um, and they took the school classrooms, which were these um, done by an award-winning architect, only used for a few months a year, but they replaced army surplus tents. And so then for migrant um, the children of migrant workers, they would provide extra summer school and so on, but it, they were essentially mainstreaming them rather than putting them in a separate school. All right. So as a lay person, James, uh, architecture, I can name Frank Lloyd Wright and maybe Frank Gehry. Is that it? That's a yeah, name, right? Frank okay. Gehry. Uh, but let's go with Frank Lloyd Wright. I was, I was uh, surprised when I moved here in 1987 and learned that there was a Frank Lloyd Wright designed building in this town. 
Yeah, Frank Lloyd Wright turns up in odd places, but he's more likely to turn up in odd places in the Midwest, where he was based. But there are also quite a few California Frank Lloyd Wrights, um, mostly in uh, the L.A. area. um, And also the only other one sort of Central Coast is um, Carmel. He designed a fabulous house right on the rocks there. This is the, in fact, Brad Pitt just bought that, I believe. Oh, did he? He may have done. I think he bought he did, bought one by one of the greens of green and green. Okay, um, which is this amazing rock house. Uh, but the other one, I think, may have been on the market. Mm-hmm. You know, these are always coming up on the market, and they're now hugely more expensive than when people bought them. But this so. building is right on the corner of uh, Santa Rosa and Pacific. Yes, it's the medical building house. And what's wonderful, what is extraordinary, in fact, is that you can walk right into it. How many other Frank Lloyd Wright buildings can you just walk right into? And they make no bones about their welcoming. Uh, You know, I used to be embarrassed at first. They said, no, we get looky-loos, come right in. Um, It was, so it was called the Cundert Medical Clinic, and it was originally the Cundert family, still around here, I believe, um, and they still own the building. Um, They, um, the, the Dr. Cundert was an ophthalmologist, and he had done his training in Wisconsin and his medical training and, you know, encountered, I think also his undergraduate, um, encountered Madison, encountered Frank Lloyd Wright buildings there and just fell in love. And when it came time that he was going to build his own building, it was right at the end of Frank Lloyd Wright's career. And so he got in just under the wire and he paid $1,500. That's it? For the design. That is it. And he met with Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright didn't come out here, but he he looked at photographs of it. And one of the things that uh, impressed him about it enough, because he was was leery of taking the commission. And then uh, one of the Cal Poly architecture professors decided to to convince him because he really wanted a Frank Lloyd Wright in town. And so he sent him pictures of the site with all of the um, sycamore trees. And Frank Lloyd Wright said, oh, you know, this this is great. I love sycamore trees. They're very democratic. They go in all <laughs> different directions. And you have to save the trees. And so it is a building interaction with the trees. It's right on the, the edge of the creek. And what's extraordinary about it, what, what is in fact unique about it, is that it is actually a Usonian house. Usonian was, Usonian. Frank, was Frank Lloyd Wright's word for U.S., his adjective for U.S. Oh. He didn't like American because that was more than U.S. So he invented this word Usonian. And so he invented these Usonian houses, which were more middle class houses, not incredibly practical because the way he liked to design was with verticals and horizontals. So what you got was a very vertical reception area, dining room, living room, kitchen. So your kitchen cabinets are like 12 feet off the ground. <laughs> it's not, not the best thing in the world. And then these very hor- a, a very horizontal sort of um, arm that would go out for all the bedrooms that were so horizontal that it looked like um, Pullman compartments, you know, on a train. So, um, you know, these these little teeny bedrooms, and he was more interested in, in the big high living rooms. And go and look at the Cundert Medical Clinic, and that's what it is. And if you see it, you go, oh, that's a Frank Lloyd Wright building. Yeah. It's so distinct. It's it's incredible. And the city, he wanted to build it in concrete block, and the city said, no, 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 you have to do it in brick. Um 
to to meld with the rest of the community, which is in fact not in brick. I don't know why they chose brick, <laughs> but but you know that was okay with him. He did it. And um, so, what do you think of the architecture? It was it's wonderful architecture, and I'll give you two perspectives. Dr. Cundard himself said he he knew he would be spending a lot of time at his ophthalmology clinic, and he wanted a place that where he would be comfortable, where if he was tired, it would have a comfortable atmosphere. Why else would be there be a fireplace <laughs> in the waiting room? I mean, this is obviously a house that has been repurposed, a house design that has been repurposed as office design, and is the only Usonian office that uh, Wright ever did. But also, um, a friend of mine, um, a homeless person on the street, wonderful artist, Tim, I've mentioned him before, um, who does the wire sculptures in front of where uh, Creaky Tiki used to be. He said he used to like to sleep on the um, on the terrace. There's because there's this wonderful patio you can just walk in and enjoy how it, it goes amongst the sycamores and over the creek because um, for two reasons, the cops wouldn't catch him because they weren't looking there. And also he loves Frank Lloyd Wright and he loved the way that the sun would come in as it was setting through all of these clearstory windows, which are the windows sort of on the, the upper level uh, of the kind that you normally see in a church. And the sun would come out on and through the shadows onto the patio, and he could enjoy that. So I know a lot of homeless people who really like Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, so, but there's a lot of people who enjoy Frank Lloyd Wright. So why not people without homes? Uh, you know, you can always dream of having a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Yeah. The problem is they're very uncomfortable to live in most of the time. Really. Whereas Julia Morgan houses are really designed for comfort. And if you you can stay in Julia Morgan rooms in uh, at Asilomar, um, that camp on uh, in Carmel, you can stay the Berkeley City Club. That's a bit more expensive, but you stay in a Julia Morgan room, and there are Julia Morgan club rooms you can walk around. You can go to the Hunt, Fort Hunter Liggett. She designed the yes, that's um, the the, Mil the Milpitas Ranch House. That's yeah. called. Right. So that was the ranch house that William Randolph Hearst built to re replace one that burnt down. It's solid concrete, so I encourage you not to stay there in the winter because it is cold. And don't stay there on weekends because that's when the National Guard troops are training, and at night, though, they're downstairs in the bar. And if you're sleeping yeah. upstairs, you're not getting any sleep. Yeah, but only during the week. So, so if you go there um, sort of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it's, it's quiet as a tomb. Yeah. And one of the rooms, the tower room, has a fireplace that you can get logs and, you know, the Duraflame or whatever and have your own fire. Um, there are rooms without bathrooms, which are called the cowboy rooms, because that was for Hearst Cowboys. And the last time I checked, they were $50 a night. They've probably come, gone up. But it's very cheap to stay there because it's a military hotel. Um, it's right inside the camp, and it looks down over uh, St. Antony of Padua Mission. Yeah. It's amazing. The Lost Mission. And it's really a wonderful experience to stay there. It's not very expensive. Then... Take the road, the Holon Road, out to the coast, and it is the most spectacular road you have ever been on, including the Coast Highway. All right, uh, Dr. James Papp sharing his new book with us, San Luis Obispo County Architecture, and inviting folks to come to the new exhibit at the History Center in San Luis, right downtown there on uh, Broad Street and Monterey. Uh, we'll come back for a final segment. We're live, we're local. It's the Dave Congleton Show.
We'll tell you about the brand new Slow Coast Tasting Passport after ABC News at the top of the hour. We're in our final segment with Dr. James Papp. The brand new book is called San Luis Obispo County Architecture, available however you get books. Also, come by the History Center. You can buy the book there, by the way. And you can see the exhibit featuring some of the photographs that uh, James has been talking about. I have a feeling that a lot of people have not seen most of these photographs. Although, I guess it's the basic question, why photograph a building? Yeah, it is It is an odd question, and buildings are not painted that often. I mean, in the sense that someone says, we must have a painting of this building. What do you paint? You paint people yeah. because they're mutable. Soon they will change. In fact, often people painted people who were already dead. They would, um, you know, there would be a family group and there would be one child who would look very ethereal. That's because that child had died, but they still wanted them in the family painting. Um, In the 19th century, a post-mortem photography was very common because uh, someone would die and you didn't have a photograph of them. So you would take them on their deathbed after they had died. Um, really? Yeah, it was it was quite common. Our friend Eva Oles did an exhibition of this in New York uh, and had photographs as well from someone who had reintroduced it because he found that there were families, their, you know, their child uh, baby was stillborn or their child was, had died um, and they didn't have any photographs, you know, usually people with babies because they hadn't gotten to that point. And it was for their emotional release. Um, mm. So this was a very common 19th century thing. But why buildings? Well, the reason buildings and photographs go together is the very earliest photographs had such long exposure times that the only thing that would hold still was a building. Mm. So you you didn't want something mutable. People move. Uh, we're talking about hours and even days. The very first camera photograph is um, dated to 1826 or 1827. Of San Luis? No, of, oh. this was a, a place called Le Gras in France. Okay. And it, the very first one ever camera photograph ever taken in the world. And it's not much to look at. You can look at it online in its original form and also sort of enhanced. It was done by a guy named Nisafor Nieps, and he exposed it for at least eight hours. And they know that because... Every surface has light on it. So they know that the sun moved while he had the camera exposed. But you've showed it to me, and I can barely decipher any of it. Yeah, it's a few sort of architectural shapes outside of his window. Yeah. Um, And his um, associate, uh, Louis Daguerre, then uh, invented... And and some people think he actually exposed it for several days, not just eight eight hours is the minimum. Um, Louis Daguerre invented a a method by which you could photograph um, in, in minutes rather than hours, and his first one, uh, certainly his first famous one, which is also considered the first photograph of people, um, is of a street scene in Paris. You know, it's the buildings in Paris taken from a high window, but someone happened to be getting his shoes shined in the picture. So the, the little boy shining the shoes and the guy standing there getting his shoes shined, they stood still long enough to get in the picture. So what are the earliest photographs of San Luis Obispo? San Luis, and this is interesting because the reason we can date them is that they are both calotypes. And calotype, calo meant, uh, C-A-L-O meant beautiful in Greek. Uh, but the other name for them was Talbot types. And they were invented by William Henry Fox Talbot in England. And they were a process where the negative was, was actually paper treated with... Uh, 
um, salts and nitrates and so on and to to absorb light. And so they have a very ghostly ethereal appearance. And I found two of these calotypes or Talbot types, one of an adobe in the Edna Valley and one which is no longer there and one of downtown San Luis Obispo from the direction of Monterey Street. The mission is there and the mission is the only building there that's left. Mm. So it turns out buildings are very mutable. Um, they do disappear, and we only know about all the buildings along San, uh, along Monterey Street from this photograph. Well, I'm Facebook friends with Chuck French, and I swear every day he's posting old photos of San Luis, Pismo Beach. And they're fascinating, James. Just, oh, this is what the place used to look like. But they're not of people. They're just of buildings. Yeah, and... A really, I want to talk briefly about two really interesting people in this history of local photography of buildings. One is a woman named Edith Gregg, and she and her friends from the Monday Club went around San Luis Obispo County taking photographs of adobes mostly, but also other buildings. And one of the buildings in my, or series of buildings in my book, are four fabulous bungalows that she just took from an angle so that you see the serried ranks of square columns for them. Um, they're colonial revival bungalows, heavily Japanese-influenced, however, in their architecture, which was a thing there. American colonial with Japanese influence. And they were at Oil Port, which was an oil port, an oil refinery built in 1907, two weeks after it opened. The pipeline and the pier were wiped out by a tidal wave. And it never reopened, but it just continued to exist there. It's where Shell Beach is now. The other really interesting, and, and I have one of her photographs in there because she's a, unsung, but her um, albums are at the History Center, her photography albums. The other person is this really interesting guy named Baron Wiley, J. Baron Wiley, and he was an audiovisual professor in the education department at Cal Poly. He was also a calligrapher and a classical guitarist and a photographer. <laughs> it's really this sort of wow. renaissance man. Uh, according to my friend Gene Martin, who um, took his class in audiovisual when she was getting her MA uh, back in the 1950s. He was a very kind man, but he took at least 1,300 photographs of San Luis Obispo buildings, specifically of the buildings. You are lucky to see a person in them. And he donated these to the History Center. And they are this remarkable record of what San Luis Obispo looked like at various periods. Um, one of his pictures is of the one that you noticed last time I was on your show talking about this book of the post office. But he took a lot of them in the 1980s, and he was broad of church. He just... Um, he took strip malls. He took um, oh, he took um, the hamburger factory, the burger factory. Sorry, yeah. in Pismo Beach. Um, I have that in the exhibition because it's just such a great fac photograph of roadside architecture. Uh, incoming text question for Dr. Pap: Does he have information on some of the quote old painted ladies in historic San Luis? I live in one of them. And I can't tell you how many people stop by and ask all about it. I do have a lot of information. And what, what is it? What, what, is, what are they talking about? The painted well, ladies. So painted ladies was a term invented in the 1960s in San Francisco. Because if you look at pictures of San Francisco in the 1940s and 50s, all of these wonderful Victorian buildings are all painted gray. And there was even an urban legend that they bought surplus Navy paint 
yeah. <laughs> after World War II and just painted everything gray. But there was a, a tendency to paint everything white and gray at that period and not worry about all the details. Uh, the Jack House was pure white. Um, until the city took it over and Jim Stockton started testing the paint and came up with um, this design. So um, your listener can text me or call me at 805-470-0983. That's 805-470-0983. That's my personal um, phone number. So, Or contact me and I'll hook you up. Yeah. See, these paint, these are painted ladies. Yeah. So the notion was, so in, in the 1960s in San Francisco, people started going to town on painting uh, extravagant um paint jobs on Victorian houses to pick out all the wonderful detail. It was a, a revival of interest in the Victorian house. And so that's where the term painted ladies comes from. All right. Uh, the book is San Luis Obispo County Architecture, available however you get books. You can particularly get it at the History Center. And while you're there, you can see the new exhibit featuring uh, this work assembled by Dr. James Papp in support of his book. Uh Congratulations on the book. Congratulations on the exhibit. I got 30 seconds for a final thought. Yeah, come to the exhibition because there's a lot of different things, photographs in there that are not in the book that just interest me and I thought would interest the viewer. There's also a, they still have the exhibition on the Varian Brothers. They have a new exhibition on Hidden Voices about women in San Luis Obispo who made an impact. Um, there is a, a new room where kids can touch old things. <laughs> Careful. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, Where, so, where's the original migrant mother photo? It's in Washington because it, it belonged to the federal government. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Off we go. News, traffic, weather. I'm Dave Congleton. Four o'clock hour starts now. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.